Welcome to the podcast, The Dental Breakdown Show. This show is where we break down the issues in the dental marketplace. It's April 22nd, and this is podcast number four in a series of five. My name is Christian White, CEO of White & Associates Practice Consulting, Better Business, Better Dentistry. Today we are talking about the private dentist's response to the coronavirus. Let's introduce our guests to the podcast. Lisa, let's start with you. Why don't you tell us about yourself? Hi, my name is Lisa Netzer, and I am an attorney working with Minnesota Transitions with Joe Frickton. In addition to helping with dental transitions, um, doing all the contract and legal work behind the scenes, I have an extensive background in the area of employment law. And at Minnesota Transitions, I help um, clients with employment contracts, employee handbooks, and discipline and termination decisions. Wonderful. Thank you, Lisa. All right, Dr. Frank Milner, why don't you tell tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Frank Milner. I'm a practicing dentist for 43 years. I'm an educator, a publisher, and a clinical mentor of Milner Mentoring. And I'm very passionate about the profession of dentistry to give back anything I can based on what my mentors have given me. So this is very meaningful today to be with a distinguished panel. Thank you, Dr. Frank. Okay, Joe Frickton, tell us a little bit about yourself. No volume, Chris. Joe, you're, you're uh, on mute. On mute. Thank you. There you go. There we go. Thanks for that. Uh, um, try that again. So I'm a, <laughs> one of the founders of Minnesota Transitions, and I'm an attorney, and we're a full-service uh, practice transition firm helping dentists uh, with uh, selling their practices, joining practices, partnerships, um, and then all the legal issues that surround those, um, those transitions. All right. Thank you very much, Joe. All right, Jay White, tell us a little bit about yourself, please. Thank you, Chris. Um, I've been working in the dental field for the past 40-some-odd years um, with Quite and Associates, and we are teams. We help in communications. We help in developing of systems and performance and profitability of practices. And um, we've seen pretty much, pretty much everything over the last 40 years. So it's, uh, it's been a very good experience and we really love, I love what I do. Thanks. All right, thank you very much, Jay. Okay, Lisa, I'm gonna come uh, right back over to you to start with today. Um, the Family Medical Leave Act. Um, the Secretary of State has updated the guidelines. I know you've got a lot to share about that. Why don't we start with that, please? So the, um, the specifically what I want to talk about is the expansion of FMLA and the um, expansion of paid leave under the CARES Act. Um, the great um, answer for the vast majority of businesses we work with is that these new paid leave provisions do not apply to you. If you have 50 employees or fewer, you are generally you are not going to be um, subject to these new laws, but that that's the great news. The 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 other side of it is that you might have to do a little bit more than simply say, "But I'm a small employer; this doesn't apply to me." So um, the, it's the U.S. Department of Labor which has issued some guidance about these new federal laws, and specifically, they want employers who are smaller to not only say they have these 50, 50 employees or fewer but they want them to document why they should be granted an exemption. So there are three provisions that talk about that. Um, three different ways you can say, my business cannot afford to provide paid leave for my employees. 
The first one is that you are you don't have to provide paid leave for employees. If the small business's expenses and financial obligations exceed the available business business revenues. So let's say if you were to pay an employee who wasn't showing up and wasn't producing, that would put you under, then you clearly qualify for an exemption. The second exemption talks about if the person requesting leave or FMLA, if them doing that would be a substantial risk to the financial health or operational capabilities of your business because of their specialized skills, knowledge, or responsibilities, then again, then you get an exemption. So let's say you have one dental assistant and we all know that they are harder to find than hen's teeth right now. You give that person paid leave because you need their help in order to run your business. So that's the other one. The other um, question, the other exemption or the third one is a lot like the second one, which is simply that there are not sufficient workers who are able, willing, or qualified who'd be able to fill that empty time or space. So in other words, if you can't find more hygienists, if you can't find other people, you also qualify for an exemption to this paid leave provision. So those are the three, um, and I'll summarize them as, number one, I can't make the budget work if someone's out on paid leave. Number two, I, um, the leave risks my ability to run my business because I need this particular person. Or three, I cannot replace this person because there's no one else in the area who could provide these specialized skills. The vast majority of people who have life insurance you're gonna follow, are gonna fall under those categories really easily. But, What's important is that employees can ask for paid leave. They can always ask. What the department has indicated is they don't want you to send anything to them to request an exemption. Instead, they want you to document when the employee made the request, how many employees you have, and why you fit into one of those three exemptions. So you document that, put it away in your file. The only way somebody would ever look at this is that the, these provisions are going to be enforced by the Department of Labor, so under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So it's just like if you were paying someone minimum wage, it's that kind of a claim. Um, but as long as you have that documentation in your file about why you couldn't grant paid leave, you're gonna be covered from, and you don't have to provide paid leave to employees. Um, if you have specific questions about that, we'd be willing to walk you through that. Maybe you have an accountant who could say, listen, if we had this person on paid leave, the numbers don't work anymore. Any sort of documentation like that's going to help you out. So another question that comes up about being gone and being paid a lot lately is about whether or not when you're open for emergency treatment and you bring a staff member back for a few hours, does that suddenly make them ineligible for the unemployment benefit of $600 a week provided by the federal government under the CARES Act. Right. Now, for a lot of people, that $600 is a big bonus. It is a chance for them to get ahead a little bit of what they might otherwise make on a weekly paycheck. And a lot of people want to stay home to get that. Again, the short answer is really good news. As long as the employee is working fewer hours than their average weekly number of hours, they qualify for federal compensation. Now, the feds haven't made this easy. You have to dig through all the guidance for the CARES Act, but um, in order to find where the Secretary of Labor has said, if you get a partial payment or any payment from a state, you also get the $600. So that's the information from the feds. 
The best guidance really comes from the universe, from the Minnesota Unemployment Insurance website, which is MNUI.org. And that specifically says on its website, quote, if you are eligible for any unemployment benefit, you will automatically receive the additional compensation after you submit your weekly payment request. So when um, your staff see the payment, what they'll see from the state is a payment from the state, which is for the hours, um, their calculated benefit, and a second payment of $600 from the feds. So it, you don't see it on the website. The website won't calculate the $600 into your total amount due to you, but it does give you, um, the state does pay it directly. Now, the one thing I will say, the more hours someone works, the more their state partial benefits go down. So it's not that they don't um, lose some uh, unemployment benefits during the time, but it's not the big $600 payment. The other thing you could consider is if maybe you have just one or two employees come in instead of trying to spread it out amongst everybody. Number one, that helps um, limit how many people are exposed right now to potential people who might be carrying the virus. But number two, other some employees will then be able to benefit from having um, the most direct paycheck. And if you have just four hours for one person and five hours from another, that's not going to affect their benefits as much. Wonderful. Lisa, that was awesome. You, you can take a breath now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, mm -hmm. Dr. Frank. Um, can I add on one, one piece oh, on to sure. what she Sorry. said? Yeah, go ahead. Um, because it really dovetails nicely with that, the last, uh, the unemployment, is that if most of dental offices are applying for PPP loans, the payroll protection program, mm -hmm. and those loans, uh, if you have received them, um, or if you've gotten confirmation, you will be receiving them great. Uh, more money is being allocated to the program because um, the initial funding has run out. And so we recommend you talk to your banker uh, to get that application submitted if it hasn't been. But once you do get those funds, there are very strict rules on how um, on hiring your staff back uh, and bringing them back to their regular uh, compensation. And in order to have the funds forgiven, um, and which is the goal is to have all of it forgiven. So what we're recommending is that if you do get the PPP loans is to work with your banker uh, to make sure that, you, or your accountant, to make sure you fully understand the requirements for having the, those PPP funds uh, forgiven and to understand how much you need to hire the staff back and, um, and the timing of all of that because the rules are pretty strict on that and you want don't you don't want to get into a situation where you're having to uh, where you can't get fully forgiven for all those PPP funds. Joe, Joe I have a quick question for you. I'm getting questions from our clients. Um, <clears throat> with income taxes on the money that you're getting, um, if excess along the way, are there going to are the clients going to be charged income tax on this? Uh, no, all the on the the PPP funds that are going to be coming in when that is forgiven. You know, typically when a debt is for when a loan is forgiven, then that's considered income to the uh, recipient of the loan, and then you're taxed on that. Uh, there's a provision in the the CARES Act that says that those funds are not considered income. Okay. And uh, now it is 
taxed when it's paid out as wages to the doctors as well as the the yeah. staff. That's going to be taxed in normal income tax uh, levels. Um, there's also some. This is getting a little more into the weeds of the law, but there's a, there's some ambiguity about whether or not you get to deduct the payments that you make to your staff uh, on your taxes for 2020. Good question. Um, and we there is conflicting um, laws and conflicting readings of that. So we don't know how that's going to be treated from a tax standpoint. Um, but in general, when the, when you get those PPP funds and they're forgiven, then that's not considered uh, income, taxable income to the owner. Okay. All right. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate that. Okay. Uh, Dr. Frank, let's uh, shoot it over to you for a second. Um, you know, patients are going to be coming back into dental practices after they reopen. Um, I think, you know, you and I have chatted about the services that the dentists are going to be able to offer to the patient. It's going to have to be a little different. And patients are coming in, you know, either having lost a job or, you know, having a, a financial piece, financial pressure. You know, tell us a little bit about how the dentists are going to deal with that, especially the services that they're going to have to offer patients. Okay. This is a brand new topic. I never thought I, as a clinical mentor, an educator that I'd have to deal with the subject matter, but it's here. I would advise my colleagues is do not default back to what you knew before the virus and continue on with that mindset. Christian, uh, I see you have a big leaky filling. Let's get you scheduled for a crown. I don't think that's going to make it. I think what today I would advise any colleague to offer conservative treatment that makes sense to the patient. There's a, a lot of moving pieces here is that if you want to avoid complications and more extensive dentistry, you have to prevent it from happening in the first place. That will be your prevention side of the coin in your hygiene department, et cetera, to prevent the disease, looking at the risk factors. And then what a lot of my colleagues don't know is if you do engineering prep designs, you're going to have less sensitivity issues with the restorations that you have. People are going to have less money. And if they have insurance benefits, they're probably not going to use it right away. They want to be safe. So anything you offer the patient, it has to be, it has to pass the patient's price testing to start out with. What does that mean? If you have a fractured cusp Christian on a molar, perhaps you don't want the crown right away. Maybe you want a transitional restoration. Now the dentist must document with an intraoral camera photo, if you're going to do a crown later, have a documentation that you can do the crown later on. But what are you going to use for the buildup material? This is now we're getting down to ground zero. I don't think you want to use standard filling material that doesn't have a bioactivity um, component to it because you don't know how long that transition is going to last. I would tell you to start looking at glass ionomers, which uh, um, have ionic exchange, can actually remineralize and prevent microleakage. Um, you want transitional therapeutic restorations. What it, the, the most important part, it starts with the dentist being empathetic about the patient that's coming 
in. That will be in question number five. But the offer on the table should be a concerning um, importance of your overall health as a human being, first and foremost, and then couple link that together with therapeutic products that will actually stimulate oral health to prevent further damage. Maybe if you have a deep cavity, Christian, or Jay, Lisa, Joe, instead of uh, committing you to the endodontist right, to right, right away or the, the endodontic file, maybe you want to practice some selective caries removal uh, by the Dr. Hall where you leave some of the decay behind but have uh, sterile borders and then you can surround that with the filling material actually to produce secondary dentin that will uh, um, that will delay the uh, uh, root canal procedure. So all treatment offered should pass be kept be mindful of the patient's price testing. I would not advise you to be comprehensive treatment planning at this time. This is going to be a new uh, a new era for both the clinician and the patient, but you should be very mindful that what you offer that patient should be supported by the fact that you are caring, that you don't have to go to the end result right now, a crown. Um, that's multiple visits. Maybe they want to do it in one visit, but you have to substantiate your material selection and your preparation design. And you, that is a matter of record on your Facebook page, everything that this is who you are. This is why I do things and you have options going forward. So I think that's what I would advise any clinician and especially the younger clinicians who are maybe not as versed in this is that they want to default back to dental school and say, well, let's do three fillings and a crown for you, Christian, next appointment. I don't think that's gonna work. Keep in mind, you have one chance with one patient coming in on the re-entry and you wanna make that count because the, the, the patients are gonna talk to each other. And if you try to ramp up and do too much dentistry too soon, too fast. They're going to ask you, Christian, who do you go to? Well, my dentist is uh, very empathetic, very reasonable, and he offered some sound advice for, for uh, transitional things that can help me save money and help me save tooth structure. I hope that answered the question. I think that's great advice for all the dentists, especially when everybody, when everybody gets the green light to go ahead and open up their practice. The Dental Breakdown Show, sponsored by White & Associates Practice Consulting. Better business, better dentistry. They are a practice management consulting firm for dentists and other healthcare-related businesses. Their sole purpose is to implement proven strategies through online and in-practice visits and result in the personal professional success of the dentist and his or her team. Uh, Joe, I want to come to you next. Um, you know, how, I guess, I can be, I'm going to be really specific. How have practice values fared with the uh, COVID-19 uh, shutdown? Thanks, Christian. Uh, this question, we're actually getting this a ton from our clients, uh, and I've, see, I've seen online, um, kind of through the grapevine, some conflicting answers on this. Uh, and the, the answer is, right now, we don't know how practice values are being affected. Um, what really comes down, you know, the major factor 
is are we going to have a, a V-shaped recovery, so a quick recovery, or a U-shaped, kind of a longer recovery? Uh, in general, when we value a dental practice, we're looking at the hard assets, which include the patient records, the revenue of the practice, and the profitability of the practice. And the um, for the hard assets, you know, the, the value of the equipment and the supplies won't really change, but the patients coming back can change and how quickly they do come back. Um, and that's a direct then effect on both the, uh, the revenue, the collections, as well as the profitability of the practice. <clears throat> so, you know, the key is to keeping the, the values steady with having no impact is if we are in a, um, if we get that V recovery so that patients are coming back as soon as they reopen, the patients are coming back pretty quickly, that schedules remain full, uh, the revenue stays, and that the profitability continues. Uh, what will, you know, specifically for 2020, what's going to probably happen when we do valuations of, of your practice is that we're going to throw out the first quarter and the second quarter, and we're just going to look at what the practice does for the third quarter and the fourth quarter, and then we'll annualize out to a full year. So if we open, let's say, you know, sometime in the next month, a month and a half with all the, um, then we want to make sure that, that the patient levels and the production go up uh, back to their historic levels within, you know, by July 1st or, you know, shortly thereafter. And if, I, if we can show that your practice has gone back to those normal levels for a sustained period of time for 2020, then there won't be really any impact on the practice. Um, what is uh, on the opposite side of that, if it is a more of a U-shaped recovery where it's taking a longer, longer time to come back and we're not seeing kind of immediate growth of um, or uh, immediate return of revenue levels and patient levels, then there will be an impact, a lower impact on patient value or on, on practice values. So it's, you know, it's imperative to continue to work on recall and, and making sure that those practices do come back and that you're actively working on uh, getting ready to, to come back. So um, I think that as long as we are active in you know, working on the practices, then we shouldn't have much of an impact. Um, and the other piece I want to add on is that most likely we're going to be somewhere in the middle. We won't get back to historic levels right away. Mm -hmm. um, but we will, you know, but there will, you know, patients will come back. Dental work does not go away. Um, teeth still decay. And so what we will, what's imperative for dentists to maintaining their value in their practice um, or when they're looking at a, a dental practice to purchase, if they're considering considering joining another office, is to uh, monitor their overhead along with their revenue. So if their revenue is not going up back to normal levels, look at ways to keep that overhead, to uh, cut back that overhead and commensurate levels to the uh, to the revenue. And uh, because uh, the worst thing in the world is that the revenue doesn't come back all the way, but the overhead comes back in a big way. And then the, the overhead is the profits are going to get squeezed. And then that's going to have a very significant uh, impact on your practice value. 
And that's really when that overhead gets squeezed and the profits, or the overhead stays high and the profits get squeezed, that's where we run into problems with transitions and finding a, um, a younger doctor to take over a practice because there isn't that money in there to support their own living expenses um, as well as the uh, any loan for purchasing the practice or uh, if they're buying into the practice. So mo monitoring that overhead along with the, the production is crucial to keeping those, those patients, uh, keeping the practice values where they are. Um, and so I, I know that you know, White and Associates works at, on recall and, and budgeting and making sure that the practices are profitable. And you know, I know that you guys can really add value to practices to help with in that area to keep those practice levels um, stable. All right. Thank you very much for that, Joe. I appreciate those kind words. And uh, thank you. you know, just a quick question. So, Joe, from your perspective, uh, from the transition piece, you know, when you're looking at overhead, what's high to you? At what point do you kind of start seeing uh, profits being squeezed? I mean, is there, is there kind of a range or a percentage that dentists can, you know, kind of just um, compare their practice to? Sure. The three percentages that I look at when I'm valuing a practice. Um, the first isn't really overhead, it's write-offs. And when write-offs, uh, insurance adjustments and other write-offs are over 20% of a practice uh, of, of the production, then we're gonna naturally see a higher overhead in general because it's gonna cost that much more money to produce the dentistry, but you're not getting the corresponding revenue um, to support it. So what? anytime it's gonna get you know, when the, that collection percentage is, you know, 75, between 70 and 80%, which we see from time to time, we're going to naturally see the, the profits are a lot skinnier. Um, the second, the other two pieces of, from an overhead perspective that really can drive that higher number is in the, uh, the staff uh, and the, the total team comp, um, expense. So that's both compensation and benefits. Um, and if that number is over 30% of the revenue of the practice, then that's going to be too high. And, and it could be 30, you know, 31, 30, 31, 31 and a half. But if it creeps into the 30s, that's when the, the profits are going to get, are going to go down. And, um, and that's the most common place that we see that overhead can get a little out of whack. Um, and the last piece that we see from time to time is in the facility expenses. So that's in, in rent uh, and in utilities and, uh, and all, everything that goes into maintaining your facility. And in an ideal world, that's gonna be between five and 8% of revenue. But if it gets over, if it gets to 10% and goes above 10%, that's gonna be another uh, pretty big red flag that something's going on in the practice. Um, now it could be that what, you know, going back to the, the staff a little bit, one of the problems could be in the hygiene department. If the hygiene department isn't producing well enough, then you're not getting that production to, you know, you might have the right staffing levels of, and you're paying them in normal, um, you know, market uh, wages. And so there's nothing you can do to affect the staff. You know, it's not like you're paying them too much, but they need to be producing enough revenue uh, to, uh, justify and to, and to keep with uh, to keep those the 
collections up and to keep that overhead from in a normal percentage. So it's not just that you're spending too much. It can also be on the production side. The Dental Breakdown Show, sponsored by White & Associates Practice Consulting. Better business, better dentistry. They are a practice management consulting firm for dentists and other healthcare-related businesses. Their sole purpose is to implement proven strategies through online and in-practice visits and result in the personal professional success of the dentist and his or her team. All right, uh, Jay White, let's uh, get over to you now. you know, we're talking about the new norm in patient flow in the dental practice. Uh, you've got some ideas on that, and you actually had some experience with this this morning. Uh, you didn't go to the dental office, but you went to the dermatology office. And I think you, you and I shared a little bit about your experience there. So why don't you, uh, why don't you take it away from there? Thanks. Okay. Thanks, Chris. Uh, patient flow and the flow through the office, a big question, and uh, it's something that needs some focus. So here we are in January going along at 100 miles an hour and suddenly uh, these practices are doing well and suddenly we hit the wall and everything stops cold and what happens next, okay? Um, On an average, the average of operative appointment in most private offices is between 50 and 55 minutes per patient visit. A hygiene visit typically has been an hour eight patients a day. The corporate offices are much different. Uh, they work on a more higher volume patients. Uh, operative visits will last 30 to 40 minutes and a hygiene visit can be 30 to 45 minutes. So they run a lot more people through their organization. Um, the asset that private practices have and still have is the relationship with their patients. They're part of the family. Corporate offices are more just kind of get them in and get them out kind of a thing. Uh, but the question is capacity. What is the capacity going to be coming in the future and is it going to be down and how do we handle it? Um, the changes that are coming, some of them are going to be as follows, okay? You need to spend some time, you need to spend some time, if it's a dentist or whether it's a team member, to reassure patients that they're safe. And there's some things we can do to make that happen and I'll talk a little bit about that as a result of some things that happened this morning. Team itself needs to feel they're safe. I think I'm hearing some clients back and say the team is a little nervous about coming back to work in this office. What am I going to do to keep them safe? Okay. Um, What kind of steps are you going to take to keep patients from gathering in the reception room in the past? That's the receptacle. And uh, that will not fly at this moment. Okay. Um, And I think you're going to have to take some time also to show patients how we're disinfecting the offices that they so that they can feel that they can relax a little bit and avoid some of this fear. Um, you want to avoid patients gathering at the front desk. Um, patients will probably get scheduled for the next visit in the operatory. Uh, it can be collected at the front desk, but it will be done a little bit differently. Okay? So uh, some people are saying, well, my, is my hygiene visit going to be an hour and a half, a normal time of thing instead of 60 minutes? And this will depend on how each office decides to make it work, okay? However, as Joe has said, budgets make a difference. Uh, it's really valuable to know what your fixed costs are and your variable costs. It's important that you cover as much as possible your fixed costs. Um, but also, as Frank has indicated, you need to have relationships that continue with these patients and you need to demonstrate that, okay? 
Um, so let me tell you about a story. I, uh, a client is doing this a little, a little differently than what I thought was, uh, was going to happen in the last couple of days. I've heard from him. Get this, okay? It's interesting. So he's getting his PPP money, I think, uh, tomorrow, as a matter of fact. And um, so what he's done is he's hired all his team back. And sometimes they're going to be seeing emergencies and not all the time is 100% of the time emergency. But what that he's going to have the whole team do when they're not seeing emergencies is something that's unusual. Um, they are making personal phone calls to all the patients who had appointments when things started to tell them what the protocol is going to be for coming back to the office. They've had a team meeting with their crew and they've put together a protocol on how they're going to make this work the new regime, okay? So, uh, they're assigning phone call appointments, phone call uh, time to contact all the patients whose patients' appointments were canceled. But also, they're calling the patients who have appointments coming up in the next month or two. They've got time to do that, and guess what? Everybody's home. Nobody's at the office. It's a good time to call people. They don't have any, you know, call you back kind of a thing on the answering machine. Um, they have decided to have a questionnaire put together that the patient indicates when they arrive at the office where, what their status is. There is going to be a sign on the front door that kind of indicates if you have this coming on and this coming on, don't come in the office. If you have this coming in, come in. And they'll have some masks and everything ready for them. Okay. Now, they may send a letter out ahead of time. You can probably do that. You can send an email ahead of time. But these, this office just decided to make a personal phone call because that's the kind of patients they have in their office. They want a personal conversation with these people to find out what they're afraid of, get to take their temperature, that sort of thing. Um, so, um, the um, other thing they're doing is this. They, this particular office has multiple hygienists with multiple hygiene rooms. So they decided to make the hygienist as productive as possible with all these things, but schedule the, patient, the hygiene patients on an interval basis. So the first patient was gonna start at 7.30, second patient in the hygiene room was gonna start at eight o'clock and they're gonna alternate back and forth and they're gonna have an assistant who's taking care of the hygiene x-rays and cleaning up afterwards and sterilizing and they're gonna do all that in front of the patient. Um, so that the capacity of the hygiene department won't be affected too much by the schedule. What's gonna be is like the staff is gonna do a kind of a upfront conversation with them to clear the way for the hygienists. And uh, they're going to probably do the same thing with the operative patients. Uh, it's really important to have the team listen to what the patients are saying and what they're not saying <laughs> between the words. Um, and look at the, the, the tone of the voice. Uh, ladies in the office are very, very good at tone of voice. My wife certainly is. And um, it is an indicator of people's emotional tension and how they feel. So um, those are things that are going to affect patient flow. And, and if I think if you put together with the whole team working on it, you can put together an office that's going to be fairly well productive. And of course, it'll work out as time goes on. If we're going to be doing this three months from now, it's going to be different than if we're doing it six months from now. So we're hoping that it comes back. The vaccination is the only thing that's going to kind of get this, get this back to normal, I think. So um, that's what's going on. All right, Jay. Thanks. Can I jump in with something? No. Yeah, please yeah. go ahead, Lisa. 
So um, we've gotten questions too from dentists about um, you know the logistics of opening up, and I just want to advocate and recommend to people that they check out what the Minnesota Board of Dentistry has put online. Um, they have a very comprehensive list of questions you should be asking patients before an appointment is ever made, about current symptoms and things like that. And the CDC has also put out recommendations for medical facilities. Now, dental offices aren't exactly medical facilities, but there's a lot of really good information in their publications about what to do about patients. And I would say it comes down to three categories. One is scheduling control. You gotta control the schedule. You gotta make sure people aren't coming who have fevers. You gotta make sure people aren't coming who have coughs. And a lot of that can be done through phone calls, emails, other information, putting something up on your website, saying these are the symptoms. We will, we will not be providing treatment if you have any of these symptoms. So scheduling controls are important. Another one is engineering controls. So posting information, limiting the number of visitors, Consider putting in a plexiglass screen between the person who's at the front desk and the people in front of them, something to create barriers. Um, how can you make sure um, patients are running into each other in hallways? Things like that um, to make sure your engineering controls are in place. And then the last form of protection really is PPE. You know, what are you going to provide? How often can it be changed? Um, are you gonna get point of care tests for people who come in? Are you gonna test people for COVID? Another possibility, um, we know some manufacturers are advertising to dentists that they can get a few hundred tests um, that use a blood drop. I don't know if those are really good tests or not. I'm not advocating those. I'm just saying there's lots of options out there to think about. And But part of PPE should also be monitoring your staff. Do they have a fever? Do they have a cough? Do they have someone at home with symptoms? And also, what's great about this example that Jay gave is that the team is working on this together. Have you educated your team? Do they understand what to look for when they're working with a patient? Do they understand how COVID-19 is spread? Do they understand that the risks involved? Because that is also part of their personal protection and talking with them and educating them is going to make them more um, open to coming back and being in the office and working there at a time when lots of people are scared to do so. Mm -hmm. Let me say this too, Lisa. Uh, Christian and I have put together a uh, kind of a questionnaire patients fill out when they come in the front desk that mm -hmm. have some things and they sign it and it becomes part of the patient record in the computer. Um, so we've got this. If people want it, they can kind of call me and we'll send it simply to them. Uh, we've also got some information here that we can put in the front, front door as they read before they actually come in the office so that, you know, if this is a situation, you know, please stay away. If you come on in, we'll have some masks for you, that sort of thing. And if you want something like that, we can send that to you also. Um, yeah, uh, so I went to this dermatology office this morning. It was a great experience. I've uh, paying for some sun exposure as a lifeguard in high school or in, in college. And believe it or not, I'm gonna have to go back for some surgery, but they took my temperature this morning, this little touchless temperature deal, and I was normal. I can believe it, I was normal, unbelievable. Wonderful. Unbelievable. Um, so. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had my mask on and uh, everything went just fine. And everybody was copacetic, but there was only one other person in the reception room. Uh, everybody else was in an operatory somewhere. The doctor was doing exams. So it went very nicely. It was very, wasn't hurried. It wasn't rushed. It was very casual, but it was very purposeful. 
So Jay, when you, did anybody, uh, how did you know that it was okay to walk into the office? Did someone text you or call you or did you just walk up? No, the front uh, door? this was, this was at the front door okay. uh, to read. And I simply read it before I opened the front door. And since he says, if I have these situations, do not enter. And you just kind of, okay, well, I guess I don't enter or I do enter. And, and when, uh, when, um, I got to the front desk. I was asked to fill out this form that uh, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And she signed it. I signed it. She put it in my tax patient record and away we go. So okay. everybody in the office was wearing masks okay. and went quite well. Frank, I'm going to kick this over to you real quick. I'm just going to bring this to you. you know, how important is it for you as the dentist to have a, a dental assistant walk to the front door, open the door and let the patient in and the dental assistant is you know, has a full gown on, has a face shield and gloves on, you know, is that something that, you know, does that tell the office that we're safe? It's a good point. In the past, Jay can attest to this and everybody else, infection control was somewhat subjective and uh, sometimes dismissive. That infection control wasn't taken to the letter of what had been um, advised. So today, this is gonna be tantamount to anything, is that before we got shut down, I went to the reception room in front of patients with a shield, face shield, and I was wiping doorknobs. I was wiping um, everything. I was wiping pens, everything. And I think it's tantamount that when a patient comes into the practice, somebody can open the door, somebody can escort the patient right to a room that you can see that it's been sanitized. You watch the, the assistant actually sanitize the room, uh, spray and wipe and then spray again, wiping pencils, everything. This is, I, I think it's gonna be essential for everybody here on the panel that you're gonna, the patients are gonna be watching for this. So why not step ahead of the curve and uh, be proactive? You know, Frank, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, and one of the things dentistry is very good at is developing protocols for this and protocols for that. And you're right, the the, pre the screening for the for this has not been really too too strong, but it's it's but it's there. So we've got together some protocols here for reopening the office that uh, we'll be happy to send to people on how to do it as a way to begin with. You, have, you, have to, you obviously have to paper it to your own practice, uh, your own way of setting things up. But it's a way of looking at saying, well, gee, I want to do this, but like, why don't I do this? Let's, let's try this. And do it with a team because um, they're going to make a difference. One of the things I'm discovering here is that the team members, <laughs> un, uh, unintended consequences here, these, these wonderful people are being paid unemployment plus the 600 bucks and they don't want to go back to work. Lisa, maybe that's something we should talk about too. What is the position of the employer if they don't want to go back to work? Can they force them? So it's a great question because we do have dentists who are running into that really quickly. Um, and if, if employees refuse to, turn to return to work, Basically, it's the same answer as it always has been, which is if you don't show up, you don't have a job. Um, you can't claim unemployment benefits if you have work available to you. 
So, good point. Very good point. So you have to you have to respond if your employer um, requests that you come to work. But I, I say this with this caveat: old school is if you don't show up, you don't get you, you don't have a job. Um, this work environment is going to be really different. And so if you have employees who are refusing to return to work, ask I encourage you to ask yourself, what have I done to encourage um, their questions about returning to work? What information have I given them about what I'm doing differently and how I see our practice moving forward? And do you have I included them um, and let them know what kind of personal protection um, actions I'm taking at all those different levels, scheduling, engineering, and PPE? Because a lot of people don't want to come to work because of that. You should also keep in mind, some people might not want to come to work because someone in their family is sick and they're providing care. They don't have childcare right now um, or other issues, or do they, do they have someone who's at high risk living in their home or that they're providing care for? Um, you know, dental offices are often small families. You know, they're, they're people oh, you, most of you Very have worked true. with for a long time. Yeah, so you know these people. And so you want to share with them what you're doing, what you expect of them, and not handle it, and not just get upset when the first reaction is, why should I come back to work right now? It's yeah. a logical question. You're gonna to have to sell the job to these people again. And um, that's what it's gonna take in this kind of environment. Okay. Uh, I think what you're saying is the employer can't be offended. Right, don't be surprised by that question. If you, yeah, if you yeah. were safe at home, and everything was okay and you were making just as much money as being at work why wouldn't someone say <laughs> i really don't feel like taking the risk right now but you know, i think you're saying something important and frank talked about it uh you know having the doctor walk into the reception room with his face mask on with the full gown uh gloves it, it says something non-verbally to the person who's at the front door mm -hmm. It and that's selling it, it to the patients, but just keep in mind your staff is another population you need to sell it to, and yeah, you probably correct. need to sell it to them before they walk in the door. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, and uh, if it's a dental assistant that's doing it, the dental assistant should be fully gowned, and you know, so everyone feels there's not a fear piece here. There, I don't. I can be. I can relax a little bit. Correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Uh, this has been a great discussion. Uh, you guys have all said a lot of important things, and I think it, there's going to be a huge benefit for everybody for listening to this podcast. Um, does anybody else uh, have any other comments that they want to make? Okay. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening today. Thank you to our guests, Joe and Lisa Netzer of Minnesota Transitions. You can contact them at minnesotatransitions.com slash contact us. Dr. Frank Milner, Milner, Clinical Mentoring. You can contact him at milnermentoring.com slash contact dash us. Jay White of White & Associates Practice Consulting. You can contact him at whitedentalconsulting.com slash breakdown. I think our discussion on the private dentist response to the coronavirus was informative and very helpful. Again, I'm Christian White of White & Associates Practice Consulting, Better Business, Better Dentistry. If you'd like more information on today's topic, you can contact us at whitedentalconsulting.com slash breakdown. See you next time on the Dental Breakdown Show.